The Tenth Commandment instructs us saying this, you shall not covet. Don't covet. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in explaining that says basically what that means is that we should not be discontent with our lives and with the things that we have in our lives. And similarly, we should not be envious or desirous or grieve when our neighbor does well. It shouldn't make us jealous when we see the prosperity of the people around us. Instead, we should be, of course, content with our own condition and we should have a right and charitable spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his or hers. Those are good words. It's good exhortation from the law of God to us, and they are also heart-piercing words for us because we live to compare ourselves to other people. We live to see how we stack up against others, and we love it when we come out on top of our own measurement of how that is. We are competitive by nature, as one has said, and, uh, and I'm sure I have quoted her before in saying this, what do we live for if not to be sport for our neighbors and to laugh at them in our turn? We like to compete and we like to win. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. We can be talking about the games that we play, the arguments that we have, the sports that we do, the imaginary things that we can create to try and figure out, even in a room, even on a Sunday, who's the best looking, who's the best dressed, who has it the most together, whose family came in looking the best today, whose kids weren't crying when they came in to church today, whose kids did really well in Sunday school, who memorized things well for Sunday school today. We like to be admired, we like to be respected, and it doesn't matter who you are. Moms and dads like to compete. Children like to compete. Pastors compete with one another. Seminarians compete with one another to see who's on top, who's read more, who can quote more, who can reference somebody's name in what they have said. We like to compete. And the reason that I remind us of that at the beginning of this sermon today is essentially that is the presenting problem of our text today, of our passage today. We find ourselves, of course this is true in all of the ministry of Christ, but it's true at this particular juncture where, where you've got in proximity to one another, John and his ministry of baptism, and Jesus and the ministry of baptism that was going on by his disciples. This is an amazing moment in redemptive history. A lot is coming together right here. The old covenant in John is coming to its consummation, whereas the new covenant in Jesus Christ is coming into its own, into its fruition. It is an amazing moment in redemptive history when you see these two groups and these two men in proximity to one another. An amazing moment, and in the very middle of it, there is just plain old pettiness and jealousy and covetousness and a party spirit that arises amongst the followers of John. It seems very anticlimactic to have something like that in the midst 
of such a moment, but there it is, and there are our lives. J.C. Ryle warns of this uh, pettiness that can creep into our lives, that it is a spirit that is insidious to us, it is injurious to us, and it is contagious. When it starts, when we start comparing ourselves to one another, other people get into it as well, get convicted of it at the same time, and it can creep into us at any moment. And if it is left unchecked, it will fester inside of us, it will eat us up as we compare ourselves with others. John the Baptist, John the Baptist and his disciples basically had a corner market on this whole thing, this ministry of baptism and repentance. In fact, when they come and complain to John, they don't even mention the name of Jesus. They just kind of refer to him dismissively as, you know that one of whom you bore testimony when we were across on that other spot by the Jordan. You know that guy over there. He has set up, and this is the idea that is being presented here, a rival baptism ministry, and everyone is going to him. We're losing out. We're, we're losing our people to this one over here. Now, of course, that's not true because the very beginning of our passage says that people were still coming to John for baptism as well, but that's what it feels like. And when you're feeling this way, when you're feeling the jealousy, you speak in hyperbole. And you say, boy, everyone is leaving us. Listen, when you baptized him, didn't you get him to sign a no-compete clause so that he couldn't do this? He couldn't just watch what you were doing here and then take up a ministry like that in the other place. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? We've got to up our baptismal game. We've, we've got to set up an alternative site where we can have two sites wherein we're doing baptism. We've got to get on social media. People need to know about your ministry. Get in touch with the marketing guys and let's promote our ministry of baptism over and against or better than this upstart. How easy it is for us to fall into envy. And we, you know, remember, remember what I've said at the beginning of this. The identity of Jesus is not clear. To us, we can look at that and see the absurdity of it. John gets it. John the Baptist understands that. But not everybody understood in the way that John did at this particular moment. But it's just indicative of how easily we can slip into covetousness and jealousy. It is literally one heartbeat away from every single one of us right now. It is just one thought away. It might take you right in the middle of this sermon, one glance, one glance across the room, and you could slip into envy, you could slip into jealousy in that one glance, in that one moment. One bit of news, perhaps good news, that happened to somebody else, maybe something bad that happened to somebody else, can cause us to fall right back into that pattern. That's the presenting problem of our text today. And now with John's response to it, we turn to the incontestable answer. John could have turned to them and said, brothers, you know what the 10th commandment says. 
Ten Commandments says you shall not covet. And what we're doing right here, as we talk about this ministry over there, what we're doing is being jealous and we're envying and we're being covetousness of the fact that now Jesus is baptizing and now other people are going over there and it seems like we're dwindling. And the numbers over there are growing. The law enables us to call a spade a spade. And brothers, John could have said, this is jealousy. Stop it. Don't do this. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because something greater is at hand. John, at least, recognizes the magnitude of the moment. And he recognizes the people, and in particular, who Jesus is. Something greater than the law is at hand. Something greater than the temple is at hand. Something greater than John is at hand. And remember, Jesus himself will say of John that of those who are born of women, John's the greatest. John's the greatest. But John recognizes that as great as he might be through the gifting of God, something greater than John is at hand. Uh, if you've been around a basketball court, and it really doesn't matter if you're talking about from middle school on up through, I don't know, early adulthood. If you've been around a basketball court, you know that one of the things that is a, a, a hallmark of playing basketball is trash talking. It's trash talking. It's where you're continually comparing yourself to the people that you're playing with, to the people you're playing against, and you're trying to figure out who can block whose shot, who can jump higher than the other person, who's tougher than the other person, who's got the best crossover, who's got the best outside jumper, and you compare and you compete all the time. You try and figure out who's the best on the court, who's the best in the gym. Well, imagine that's the situation. You're kind of having that discussion. You're trash-talking everybody. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. And in walks, we're in Philly, Joel Embiid. And you've been boasting about how high you can jump or how many shots you can block. And in walks a seven-footer. And then the, the, the argument is over. Imagine you dress up and uh, you go out to dinner you're, you're, you're with your wife. And you're feeling pretty good. You got the car washed and you've gone to a nice place, and you, you've gotten all spiffied up, and up pulls a Ferrari, and out of the Ferrari, coming into the restaurant, walks, pick your people, uh, George Clooney and Amal. They, they, they walk into the restaurant. Now, how do you feel about yourself at that moment? All of a sudden, the competition is over, right? There's no contest anymore. You can't, if, if, if you had the illusion that you were the best dressed couple in the restaurant, the best looking couple in the restaurant, it's over. It's over right at that moment. There are situations in which a contest becomes a no contest. And it transitions when something so much greater is at hand. The full moon in the sky seems like a bright light. There are even times when the moon is so bright that you think, I can hardly look at it. It gets a little fuzzy when I look at it because it's so bright. Right until the sun rises. Until the sun rises, it seems that way, and when the sun rises, it is no contest. 
John the Baptist's ministry seems irrepressibly bright until the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in his wings. John turns to his disciples and says, Men, there's no contest. There is no contest. We have a difference between me and this one, the Son, that is a difference in degree and it is a difference in kind. No contest. The incontestable answer to petty jealousy, and listen to this carefully, it's the heart of the sermon today. The answer to petty jealousy, or even deep jealousy, whether it be theirs in this situation or ours, is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let's look at how John magnifies Jesus in this passage while at the same time clothing himself with humility. Verse 27, John answered after the, the protests had been lodged, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. There's nothing that I have in my ministry, declares John. There's nothing that I possess in my person. There's no personal magnetism that I have that draws people to me. Maybe his disciples would have argued, wait a minute, John, you created this. You are a self-made man. And he would say, no, this is a ministry that I received. It was a revelation that was given to me. It was a specific calling that was foretold long before I came and then was revealed to me that I should be involved with this. There is nothing that you possess, whatever your best quality is. You all have what you consider to be your best quality or your best talent or your best side, whatever that is. There is nothing that we possess, including John, that we did not receive. Verse 28 and 29. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John contrasts the best man, the friend of the bridegroom with the groom himself. You see, their concern is all of the crowds are going over here. All of the crowds are going to see him. John, well aware of Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, who will be as a husband to his people and his people will be viewed as the bride. John says, of course they're going to him. He's the bridegroom. Where else would you expect the bride to go? They have to leave from us. They have to go to him. He's the bridegroom. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John's assertion here is that between John and Jesus, though both are men, there is an utterly different origin and thus authority. 
that belongs to these two people. John is one who is of the earth. Parentally, he is of the earth. The one who is leading the baptism ministry over there, the son, he is the son who derives his authority because he is part of heaven. He is not of the earth. That is not his origin. His origin is a different origin than me. It's a difference in both degree and of kind. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And then let me jump down to 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Because of his origin, because of his authority, his speech carries with it heavenly authority. Because he is a member of the heavenly courts, because he is the man from heaven, what he says when he speaks is of full heavenly weight and authority. In verses 34 and 35, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. I need to clarify one thing that might otherwise be confusing. In uh, verse 34 there, for he gives the spirit without measure. If you've got an NIV Bible in front of you, it probably clarifies it this way to note that God gives the spirit, the father gives the spirit to the son without measure. And that I think actually is the proper way to understand this. Jesus, of course, will give the spirit uh, in the future of his ministry. But for right now, what is being asserted is that God, the Father, has given to the Son the Spirit without measure. To those who came before, prophets like John and other prophets, the Spirit was given with measure to accomplish the particular task that was appointed to them, but they were men of the earth who received some of the Spirit. The man of heaven has received the Spirit without measure. There is no measure to which he has received it, and so he carries this unique authority with him. His speech carries this authority. Why does it carry this authority? Because the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son. He has given to him the Spirit, and with the Spirit, he has given to the Son, the incarnate Son, all things. All things have always been the eternal Son of God. He has given to the eternal Son now manifest over there in a baptismal ministry all things. Christ is all. If that's true, if Christ is all, where's jealousy? Where's envy? What does it mean to boast if Christ is all? What would we possibly have to boast about if Christ is all and everything has been given to us? John the Baptist addresses his disciples and us. They expect him to be jealous. They expect him to figure out something to do. And he turns to them and he says, no contest. There's no contest between me and the eternal Son of God. He gathers and draws people to himself. John says, behold, behold the beautiful 
Lamb of God and put away the jealousy. That carries us from the presenting problem through the incontestable answer to the necessity of a response. John, the evangelist, is going to be relentless with us, with his readers. He's going to be relentless and he's never going to allow his readers to walk away from Jesus or from what he has written and say, gee, that was nice, that was interesting, I didn't realize that before. He is always going to confront us. He will not allow us and we cannot be ambivalent about Jesus. You can't be so-so. You can't just kind of sit here and say, well, he's nice and he was good at baptizing and he drew people to himself and that's nice. John, chapter 1, our writer has personalized the universe and he's done it again. He says, all things are given to Jesus by his Father. God will be all in all. Jesus is all in all. And if then this cosmos, all that we have, all that we possess within ourselves, all that we see that is around us in the heavens and on the earth, it is created by a person, the personhood of God, then the question becomes not where do you stand in relationship to it, the universe, but where do you stand in relationship to him, the person of Jesus. And of course, John will only allow us two options. They are here in this text, as clear as can be, summarizing all of chapter 3. You either, verses 32, 33, you either receive the testimony or you don't receive it. You either, verse 36, believe in the Son or you disobey the Son. You either, verse 36 again, have eternal life or the personal wrath of God Almighty remains and rests on you personally. In Psalm 2 language, you either kiss the Son and are blessed because in kissing him you have found refuge in him or his anger remains on you and you will perish in the way. God is not indifferent to that situation. God doesn't look at that situation and say, well, there you have it. Left or right, just choose one way or the other, and these are the consequences. God is not indifferent to that reality. John the Baptist is not indifferent to that reality. John, our evangelist, is not indifferent to that. Jesus is not indifferent. The Father loves the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, the love overthrows, over, overflows, and the Father sends the Son. And John, the Gospel writer, pleads with his readers, believe in this one. He's not trying to say, just make a decision one way or the other. Don't you be indifferent either. And we circle back around then to this. We, we hear that grand reality, this grand picture of Christ exalted over all, not to be indifferent towards him. And we circle back to something very earthy and very real. Therefore, don't be jealous. 
when we join in magnifying, when we together exalt the name of Christ, when, when we, to use verse 33, the, the image that is in verse 33, when we set our seal to the testimony and say that it's true. Uh, I'm wearing a ring today. I just got resized this week. <laughs> surprise, surprise, we were in a jeweler shop uh, recently. And uh, this ring belonged to my grandmother. It was her high school ring. She gave it to me. She had it resized and uh, reformatted. It's got a, an H on it. It has become a signet ring, multi-generational signet ring. When we set our seal, our signet, to the testimony that has been given. And we are testifying not only that Jesus, the one who bore the testimony, is true, but you hear the equivalency that is made here. We are testifying that God is true. And when we do that, we are putting the axe to the seed or to the root of jealousy that is within us. John exemplifies this in two ways. One is John is full of joy at this situation. They expect anger. You own a store and Walmart opens down the street, you are angry. They expect anger from John, John says. Listen, when the friend of the bridegroom who stands hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. My joy is complete in his exaltation. And secondly, not only do we have joy, but we have humility in verse 30. The great phrase from John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. The exaltation then of Christ, that's what John has set before him. How did John get humble? How did John have joy? He exalted Christ. The law tells us jealousy is wrong. The law says that joy and rejoicing in another's prosperity is good. The grace and truth of Jesus Christ teach us that we cannot go directly between those two things. You cannot say to your heart, heart, don't be jealous. Heart, Rejoice in the good of your neighbor. Heart, rejoice and be glad in their welfare. You can't do that path right there. Instead, between those two points is the call to exalt Christ, is the call to go through the cross to get to that point. You can't pursue humility and joy directly. You can't, you can't find them anyway. You go through the exaltation of Christ. And so, set before us in this chapter as a whole, jealousy, condemnation, and wrath on the one hand, and on the other hand, the love of God. The love of God. The Father loves the Son. Because the Father loves the Son, he sent the Son into the world. Here's what Calvin said about this simple phrase here, the Father loves the Son. The love here spoken of is that peculiar love of God, which beginning with the Son flows from Him to all other creatures. 
because the Father loves the Son, it flows to all other creatures. For that love with which embracing his Son, he also embraces us in him and leads him to communicate all his benefits to us by his hand. You and I are here today. We're celebrating. We're worshiping together. We're doing our best to stay focused upon the word of God, on the exaltation of Christ, because the Father loves the Son. Behold, the love of God has overflowed. It has been outpoured on us. It is in Christ who is your comforter, who is your all and all, and therefore we will stand in the love of Christ and exalt his name and put aside the petty jealousies. Let's pray. Christ, you are all and you are in all. You are all to us. Christ with us. Christ before us. Christ behind us. Christ in us. Christ beneath us. Christ above us. Christ on our right. Christ on our left. Spirit of God. Fix our eyes upon him. Show us the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for loving us and for loving your Son and for overflowing that into our hearts. Jesus, only through you and only and always in your name do we make our prayer. Amen.